Welcome to your 2012 March edition of Voices of Experience. I'm your host, Brian Walter. And for the next five months, we are going to explore, debate, scrutinize, unpack, repack, comment on, occasionally mock, and continuously celebrate the art and business of speaking professionally. So let's get to it. Hey, everybody. David Newman with another segment of Point Counterpoint. This time, we've got Scott McCain, CSP, CPAE, going against bantamweight Craig Price, the cage match, motivation versus content. Strap in. This is a good one. I believe that all good speaking, all professional speaking is motivational speaking. If you can't motivate an audience, then there's no reason for you to be a professional. It depends on your definition of motivation. Are you motivating them to pay attention? Are you motivating them to change their lives? That's the difference. Because I don't think in a one hour or an hour and a half, you can motivate someone to change their lives. I don't think you have to change their lives, but you have to change performance. You have to give them something that they can do because the transmission of information without motivation is called boring. Well, absolutely. I, I certainly agree that you need to have entertainment value. I just think the idea of a pure motivational session is kind of ridiculous because it's temporary. Ah, but there's the point. There were two points. Number one is you're saying it has to have some entertainment value as if entertainment and motivation is a synonym, and it's not. There's some motivation that is absolutely not entertaining. It's powerful. It kicks you in the butt. It tears you up. We've heard many great examples of that. But on the other hand... it's the old Zig Ziglar line. I mean, we've heard it forever. A bath isn't temporary either, but it doesn't mean it's a bad thing. I think organizations need to plan on how they motivate their people through a variety of sources of which speakers should be one. If you can't motivate your audience, and I'm not saying you personally, but if a speaker... No, I think you are saying No, no, I swear. I'm going to kick if, you. If a speaker cannot motivate their audience to take action on their content, it means you're not a good speaker. I, I, there are a lot of great, what considered great speakers out there that do exactly what you're saying. They go in there and it's cotton candy. I, I think you might as well just get James Taylor to come out there and sing. It's the same thing because what they want, apparently, if they're going to have a pure motivational speaker, is just somebody up there to do the monkey dance for an hour. And because what's going to happen is it's to get them to go to the breakout sessions and not fall asleep because they've been, oh yeah, they're excited, but then. When they go back to their offices, it's just like James Taylor. If they're in a crisis, is uh, Carolina on their mind going to solve their problems? No. Just like half the stuff the guy told you, it's all best-case scenarios, which we don't deal with in the real world. Well, you're comparing fire and rain. To use the James Taylor oh example, you, what I you, open what, that Pandora's what, box. What you are sa- seems to me that what you're saying is you're comparing a bad motivational speaker against a great performance. The fact is, just like in music, there are horrible musicians, there are incredible musicians, there are terrible motivational speakers, there are incredible motivational speakers, and those that are at the top of their profession can inspire, can move, can can. You know, th- I I object to what we have gotten to in the speaking industry that says that content is not motivation, that the two are separate. Motivation is content. Being able to provide the information that will help people take action on what they need to do is content in today's world. Well, unfortunately, an entire generation of motivational speakers has ruined that situation for you. So uh, when we say motivational speakers, people recoil in horror. In fact, I like motivational speakers in the, in the horrible sense because those are the ones that go right before me. 
They go, the year before, they had a motivational speaker. And they got up there, and they danced around, and they said, you can do anything. And then people went back to work and said, what the heck just happened? Nothing. And so they go, Craig, we like you because guess what? You're not going to get up there and have a theme song. That's the motivational model. Have the theme song, have a lingo, catchphrase, you know, rah, 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 get people to stand up, uh, contrite, uh, contrived crap that, that people think is motivation. It, you're ah, actually, that people think. That's right. It's the, but, you it's, are, but perception is reality. Uh, but that's the stereotype, and we know that stereotypes are not accurate in many situations. There's a reason the, why they call it. Know, the, the definition of stereotype is a something that happens on a... So much, so often that it's the normal. That's what a stereotype is. There can be positive stereotypes, like somebody is a really good, uh, you know, good golfers or something. I don't know. But then there's negative stereotypes, which I won't get into because I don't want a lawsuit. But there's, there's obviously that. But that the stereotype often is the norm. That is what the definition of stereotype is. But it doesn't necessarily mean it is the current norm. It could be the historical norm. There have been bad motivational speakers. I'm not going to argue that at all. But the fact of the matter is, to me, the only thing worse than a bad motivational speaker is somebody that puts the crowd to sleep. Absolutely. That's who I want to follow is the the college professor, to use a stereotype. I do too. I like who, that one. Who absolutely puts everybody, you know, because if you have energy, if you can motivate at all, I want to suggest, though, as well, to get back to the earlier point, that motivation has been viewed as separate from content. Motivation is content. To be able to transmit what people need to do to take action on the points that I made is a significant part of my content. I don't consider myself a quote-unquote classic motivational speaker, but if the crowd that leaves my audience doesn't know what they're supposed to do when I get done, then I have failed. So, if we go with your definition of motivation is content, I always believe that content is mandatory. In motivational speaking, not sometimes content is not. It's about getting them excited. It's about getting them motivated to just feel something. But feelings are temporary. So I feel that content must be first. You, I mean, as far as being able to present, you have that's a given. I mean, if you cannot get up there and, and capture their attention, uh, you know, go home. Please return the check, which I believe is a, a taboo in this industry. Um, I'll cash all checks and we'll worry about it later. But you are, you are doing a disservice if the main goal is to make sure that they are paying attention because that should be a given. I, don't, I, I think that most speakers in the NSA, they've already got that in their pocket. You've got to make sure that, that the content comes first. How you spice that up is up to you. And I agree with your, you, the way you've got it a little bit. You've got it, you know, content does motivate, and it does. I believe that is the purest of the motivation. But when you talk about motivational speaker in the traditional sense, it's rah-rah, shishkumba, we're all happy, let's go home, woo. And that stuff doesn't do a bit of good for anybody in the long term. It's great for opening. I agree it has its places. If you're opening up uh, a, a, an association meeting, get someone who's a big rah-rah guy because then they will be raring to go to the boring breakout sessions with all the technical terms and the jargon and they'll be able to suffer through until they get to the great meal at lunch and have another keynote speaker. But for long-term value, which is what I believe most meeting planners and associations and, and companies are looking for, results, you got to go content first and hopefully, and, and, and sadly, I don't see this as much, but hopefully, the, the, if you have a lot of content, you are somewhat entertaining, not, or you have some kind of horrific story that you know, inspires people. Mostly it depresses me, but it inspires other people. 
Greg, I, I want to agree with you on on one aspect, and that is just the, one. Come well, on. Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll give you one, and that is in terms of what we perceive the motivational speaker to be. I think is inaccurate. The speaker is not motivational. The speaker is the catalyst that encourages people to motivate themselves. And therefore, what a, a good speaker trying to be motivational is doing is being that catalyst to help people motivate themselves. I'll agree with you on one other thing. I think you're right. You're exactly right. Meeting planners are looking for can results. You, can you say that again? Uh, you're exactly Thank right you. in saying that meeting planners are looking for results. So how in the world do they get results if their people aren't motivated to do something after the meeting is over? All right, we're now with Building the Biz Sales Edition here. We're talking with Valerie Cade. Valerie is an 18-year member. She's a past president of the Canadian Association of Professional Speakers, or CAPS. She spent 10 years as the CEO of a national training company, and her business is Bully Free at Work, which actually is material that is being studied and applied in 100 different countries. Valerie, that's 99 more than mine. So we figure that you probably know how to sell. Every speaker I know is a speaker first and a reluctant, timid salesperson second. Intellectually, we know that we need to sell because things don't happen unless we actually do the sale here. So you're going to be sharing with us how to create more sales now. That sounds like an awesome topic. Where do we start with that? Number one, first sale is to yourself. Okay, now I've heard that phrase intellectually, first sale as you make yourself. Why haven't we been able to sell ourselves all the time? Anytime I've not been able to sell myself, it's either when I'm trying to imitate something, uh, do something where I think, oh, this will make me a lot of money, taking a shortcut, and I fail to get in full alignment with what I'm supposed to do. And so uh, my topic area has taken me back to my roots. I have a degree working with special needs children and seniors and uh, the advocate for the one that can't speak for themselves. So my topic now, workplace bullying. I, I feel I'm in full alignment of what I was called to do. And it's interesting, when that happened, everything changed. I became hungry for trying to figure out how to get the message to people through not just my speaking or a blog or an easing. The key here for me to, that leveraged things was I added an internet marketing component to my business, not just as a hobby, but I mean, real strategically, and it's, I'll be honest, it's taken me a good five years to get to an excellent level. Um, but I think it's a good five years well worth investing in, especially now with uh, the way the world is changing. All right, so that, that first sale you make to yourself, that once you've made that sale, you're saying that creates the drive that you need to sell more, to create more products, to create more services. All right, so that's the first sale. Let's say you actually close that sale and you say, okay, Valerie, I believe. I believe in my service. I believe in my topic here. I'm just not doing a great job selling. What are some things that I can do to improve my sales? Well, if, in fact, you believe you've got that first sale to yourself, and it took me 14 years to really nail that one, and I want to be honest with that too because a lot of people think, oh, I've got to go do that, and how come I can't catch up? It took me a long time. Uh, meaning where I had to drag myself into things. But after that, the next thing is to solve a compelling problem within the area of your expertise. So to understand and make a list of the compelling problems. Uh, in inter internet marketing, they always say when you're going to write your sales copy, you must identify the compelling problems before you write your sales copy. I think that's a great exercise for us as speakers, even if we're not into internet marketing, to make a list of the compelling problems in your topic area. Now, how are you going to know for sure? 
you've got to ask the people that you've just served, the ones you've just served, because they'll likely be more open with you as opposed to ones you haven't met yet. So coming up with those compelling needs is not, here are the things I want to say, because it's not about necessarily what you want to say. It's first really what are the compelling needs, and those can only really come from those who are experiencing the compelling needs. Right. So talk or die here. You want an example? I'll give you an example. Yes. So to make it like tactile here. So my topic is workplace bullying. So you say, oh, bullying in the workplace. You go into a corporation. Nobody wants to call it that. If you speak on self-esteem, who wants to be seen walking into a room on how to build high self-esteem? Nobody wants to be seen walking in there. So you've got to position it in such a way. So what do you call Maybe respectful workplace. And then when you get in the room, it's bully-free at work. Um, even knowing those little things to get people to buy in along the way um, is very, very important in the sales process. So I started off bully-free at work, bully-free at work, and uh, it didn't work in the corporate market. It only worked in the association market. So just fine-tuning it. So I got feedback only when I would ask. Oh, we don't want to call it that. So that's just one insight. So we might just be positioning. Maybe our sessions are too long. Maybe we've got to have blended learning. Maybe they don't want the classroom learning because not everyone can uh, show up. Maybe they don't want follow-up after the session. They just want to have a good time, and they really don't want to be held accountable after. I know that grieves some of us, but some of us, uh, we really have to learn and listen to what people are saying that they want and allow them to feel okay with it. One thing I'm really reacting to in the moment here is that you you were hyper-specific on your content, bully-free at work. That is the compelling problem, the compelling need, but you actually couldn't be successful selling it if you called it that. So... In some ways, uh, even though you named it, you had to rename it for them to accept it. But once they, but they were perfectly happy to accept your content as long as you framed it a different way at the entry point. Right. Any corporate work, you know, nobody wants to be seen as not doing a good job. So it's the delicate balance of, hey, you guys are doing great, and uh, but let me just help you uh, with a little nudge here. But of course, when you get in there, you've got to do a bit of an overhaul and always honoring the people that have hired you so that they can um, have the illusion of leading the charge. All right, so solve a compelling problem. What, what, what's next on the hit parade here that says, okay, here is your pathway to hire sales now? Well, there's, there's two streams for us a lot of times. There's either corporate work where you're going to go in and do a process, or you can do uh, association keynote stuff where you're in once and you might leave right after. Um, those two models, you, and some of us have blended I do the blended as well. Here's a couple of things that I've done consistently. Number one, I have a very strong email presence with people. And that way, my assistant, rather than calling her a salesperson, because that, that scares her to death, mm-hmm. she's sales administration. I've promised her she will never have to talk to anyone live or dead. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you know, and now that she understands she does not have to sell, but she's sales admin, where she does uh, email, so we have lots of email follow-up. If someone emails us, we get back to them within a couple of hours to set up an appointment call. And you're going to be doing the appointment call. And I will do the appointment call. Okay. I will speak and sell. Speak and sell. All my staff do everything else pretty much. I even return my emails. But if she can set up appointment calls, and the way she phrases it is, um, good news, Valerie's in the office next Tuesday. We've got either, you know, in the morning or the afternoon, that kind of time frame. If Tuesday doesn't work, we've got the following Friday. But she's just trying to get an appointment call. And to also just say, uh, 
you know, it should only be about 15 minutes. And so when there's a bit of interest on their side, we're not too sure if they don't want to spend a lot of time. But if there's extreme interest, they want more time. So she's got to delicately balance that. So that's kind of like almost like a leading indicator. Because if what I'm really liking what you're hearing is that your staff is creating these little elements of scarcity. Oh, look, she's available Tuesday between 3 and 4.30. Just a 15-minute call, try and set that up. And if they're like, oh, 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 can we, is there any way we can talk with her sooner? And we will definitely need more than 15 minutes. Then that's a, probably a selling indicator to you that says, I got a live one mm-hmm. on the line here. Now, but some people are probably thinking, well, how do you even get someone to email you to begin with? I'll ask, how do you get someone to email to you? Love the question. (laughs) Well, if I go in and speak somewhere, I I think it's in our best interest to say, as you're doing up a contract, let's for I started it out with if somebody couldn't pay me my full fee, Mm -hmm. I'd want to even the score and say, all right, no problem, I understand. What I would like is to make it even so we have fee integrity. If you can refer me to three qualified people that you believe I could help. So, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, of course, after I spoke, they never want to talk to you again. They're, they're on with their lives. What? That's happened to you, too? <laughs> it's like you, they've never met you before. So now I'm getting better at this. We do this before I even show up to speak, that they would refer me. Now, some people say, well, I haven't seen you speak yet. Yes, but you've trusted me enough to hire me. So, you know, we do that delicate balance and just, you know, we try it. And some people, I'd say maybe 10% say, well, you know, let's do that after you speak. And But most of them say, yeah, let's do it right now. Here's three people. Uh, I took it to the next level by saying, do an email introduction with their name, my name, and the person. Then the next level, a three-way telephone call. And now I'm setting it up where it's a three-way telephone call after I speak, but the email introduction is before I speak. So you're incenting them to be a referral machine for you. Yes. So I want to make sure we get that technique down. So again, what is the trigger that allows them to get into this deal? Well, uh, it started off if they couldn't pay my full fees. Now, when they do pay my full fees, I ask for it anyway. So you get it on both sides. Both sides. I'm liking this. This is the number one thing that has leveraged my business by more than 50%. Okay, let's, well, let's, let's back up to make sure you hear this. You're saying this technique, just this technique, has increased your business 50%. 50%. All right, so if we're listening in the car, we should like rewind, hit play, listen to this technique three times, because this is just a format that we could all apply. This isn't particular to your business. This is a technique that you're using for referrals to kind of incent the client to give you the leads or the referrals on the front end, and now you've tweaked it on and on the back end. Right. And one other thing I learned is when you're in the sales process, look for the time in which the client is the most excited about you. The, the time in which they're, oh my gosh, I'm so thankful we're doing this. That's when you want to follow up with the referral question at that point, even before fees are discussed, it could be anything. But if they're the most excited about you, that's when you want something to be introduced for where they can help you. We're on it. We're on it. And now we're returning to a format we call The Journey, where a speaker takes us back to the very beginning of their speaking career and then shares key milestones in their business's growth. Today, we're with Eric Chester, CSP, CPAE. All right, Eric, thanks for being on the journey. And as we get into the journey, where were you and where are you going? 
Well, I, I started speaking before I knew there was such a thing as a professional speaker. I was a multi-careered guy, uh, a former high school teacher and coach, lost my teaching position due to downsizing and had to do something and figured I liked being in front of kids. My parents were printers. They printed up uh, a flyer for me that said, Eric Chester, dynamic motivational speaker for teens. I sent it out to high school principals in my local area and bam, my career started like that, Brian. So, so you started with a one-page flyer. I didn't even have a speech, but I had something better than a speech. I had a brochure. Brochure it, and they will come, or they will book. Huh? Yeah, I mean, my best friend was a photographer for a local paper, taking some photographs of me, and I, I grabbed the plastic banana out of the uh, bowl of simulated fruit on the dining room table and stood there like I was a lounge singer. He took this photograph, uh, blew it up, sent it to my house. My mom saw it and said, wow, honey, you look just like one of those motivational speakers. <laughs> whoa, that's what I'll do. And it was one of those decisions. I mean, I didn't set out to say, hey, I want to change young people's lives. I was basically looking for a job. And there weren't a lot of jobs in the paper for unemployed teachers. And so here was this photograph. And I thought, let's put together a flyer. Like I said, my parents were in the printing business. They printed up this flyer that said, Eric Chester, dynamic motivational speaker for teens. I started sending it out. The phone started ringing. And uh, I became very religious in the process because when you stand in the middle of a gymnasium and they hand you a microphone and you're looking at about a thousand kids, you find God pretty fast. I think that uh, one of the toughest audiences is the, the youth audience. All right. So most of us within NSA know you as Eric Chester, Generation Y guy. Did you discover that topic? Did you create that topic? Did that topic find you? How did that become such a big part of your, I guess, part A of your speaking career? I really enjoyed speaking to youth, and I was doing most of my programs in front of youth audiences or those who affect youth. I was doing a lot of work with parents and teachers, and yet I had joined NSA. I wanted to take a step and get into uh, playing in front of business audiences. I think the business aspect allured uh, me to that. I mean, you know, high fees and and you know bigger venues and I thought that would that would be really cool the trouble is my youth stuff wasn't playing in front of adult audiences even when I cleaned it up the stuff that students really seem to enjoy corporate audiences were like yeah it's not my deal so I had to change the question the question is what was it that I had earned the right to speak about and I started listening to so many of uh, my potential prospects. I was I was getting calls from people like, "Hey, you're a you know how to motivate teens. How do you do that?" And those calls were coming from people who were basically trying to motivate teen-aged employees. And I sat back and I thought, "Wow, maybe I do have something to offer." So I, I sat down and started brainstorming. What is it that I have to say? How can I package that? to more of a corporate audience. Uh, at the time, everybody was talking about Generation X. And I thought, you know, they're missing the boat. I, I had done a, a fair amount of my homework in generational studies, and I thought, Generation X, that, that's not where it is right now. What's on the dawn is this new generation that's coming in. And people had started referring to them uh, just with the letter Y. You know, why the, because it follows X. And I thought, you know, that, that really doesn't fit because, um, you know, it, it, it's just a letter. Plus, if we're going to name generations after letters in the alphabet, maybe we started a little late. Yeah, we're going to run out of letters. Huh? Yeah. I thought, you know, there, there's got to be something more to that. And so I coined the term Generation Y, W-H-Y, as in, why do I have to listen to you? Why do we have to do things your way? And hey, wait a minute, I've worked here for three weeks. Why can't I have your job? And 
thought that is the question that this that, that makes this generation so unique. So I packaged myself, wrote a book, yada yada, and you know went out with this new brand into corporate America, Generation Y, and it resonated. Now, how long have you branded yourself as Generation Y? I branded Generation Y back in 1998. My wife and I um, had a blended family. We had you know four teenage kids living in our house. Our oldest was about 16 at the time. And when I started talking about Generation Y in 98, and again, it wasn't like the phone just started ringing. I had to build a brand because nobody was out there looking for a Generation Y speaker. So I had to kind of create the demand. But as I started doing that, I mean, our oldest daughter, Holly, was 16 years of age. People were going, well, we don't have a problem with Generation Y in the workplace. Because again, it was just starting. People were still talking about Generation X. So it took me a few years to build the brand. Uh, Mark LeBlanc in 2000 was the chair of the Western Workshop and said, hey, Eric, I'd like you to come in and, and, and do a program on you know the new emerging generation. So one of the first real keynotes I ever gave was on the stage in Burbank, the, the Western Workshop in 2000, and it was your audience is morphing. And it was my goal from my experience as being, uh, of being a youth motivator to tell my colleagues that, hey, this is a generation that doesn't accept information the same way. They, they dream in color. They're used to getting their information with high-speed graphics and an adrenaline rush, and the talking head just doesn't work anymore. That was at a time where I was able to build more demand. And when I wrote the book, Employing Generation Y, Understanding, Managing, and Motivating Your New Workforce, and released it in 2002, things started happening. So you start getting a reputation or known as a Generation Y guy. Now, I noticed very specifically that your website and your marketing is all about Generation Y and not Eric Chester. Was that a conscious choice? Did that evolve? How did you make that decision between am I going to brand my topic or expertise versus am I going to brand me? The decision really came from a background in sports promotion. I used to put on bodybuilding contests. And when you put on bodybuilding contests, you find out that is the most narcissistic sport in the world. And everybody wants to talk about themselves. And people on the outside look and go, how could these people be so self-involved, so full of themselves? However, if somebody is, you know, into, say, building cars, they have no problem with saying, hey, come out into my garage and let me show you my really cool new car. But if a bodybuilder says, hey, let me show you the size of my arm, you think, oh, get over yourself. Well, that provided me with a template. I don't want to just talk about me. Wow, Mr. Meeting Planner, you ought to hear me. I'm really great. I am really funny. Your audience will love me. But I could talk about a brand. I could say, your people really need this message. So it first started out, picture, you know, a a logo. My first logo types were real big, Eric Chester. And then underneath, Generation Y. And then I started saying, you know what? It's not about me. I know that sounds, you know, cliche, but really it's not about me. They're buying a solution to their problem. So I started switching that because Generation Y hit them where they lived. That was their pain. I used imagery on the cover of the book, on the website, etc. It wasn't me standing there holding a microphone. Who gives a flying fofla about that? What they wanted to see is that's what I'm having problems with right there. That, that, that kid that looks like that, that, that young person who acts like they're doing my customer a favor by taking their money. So I use that kind of imagery and that kind of branding to sell that Generation Y brand. And it resonated. It worked. So I didn't mind taking a back seat to the brand, Brian. Now, here's a fascinating thing to me. So you started this brand really kind of in 1998. It's like around 
you know, 2000, 2002, you've, you've got expertise, you've got the book, you've coined the name, uh, you're, you've got a contrarian, you know, I know these guys don't, and so you're getting hired. And then at a certain point, you start to realize that I'm going to need to make a shift on this brand. And I know you're in the midst of that now. Tell us, how, how did you see it coming? How did you decide that here is this fantastic, successful brand that you're now going to intentionally migrate from? How, how do you make a decision like that? How does that come about? I knew there was an expiration date in terms of relevance. And my heart is with teens and young adults, teens and 20-somethings. And I didn't want to follow a particular generation all the way through the life cycle. So as they turn 30 and 40, I'm still talking about Generation Y. So in the back of my head, when I first launched the branch, I knew, uh, brand, I knew at some point there would come a time where, hey, wait, this isn't going to play anymore. And uh, sure enough, those events started to take place. I saw the writing on the wall, and I knew I had to create the next thing. It was actually, Brian, there was kind of a perfect storm that led me. I mean, it would have been great to just stay in that market, but everybody that's in business knows that things are cyclical. And as hot as the brand was for a long period of time, the brand started cooling off. Remember, I was working with companies and organizations that were concerned about recruiting and retaining young employees. Now, this is all pre-NSA Rocks, 2008. Those of you, you know, those people listening know that I was, uh, that that was a, a project of mine being the convention chair in 2008. And the economy before that convention and the economy after that convention completely changed. So when I was in the heyday, it was because organizations couldn't recruit enough young people and they had no idea how to connect with them to get them to stay. So that was my calling card. I can help you recruit and retain young people. Well, now all of a sudden here came, you know, the events of, of September 2008. The economy goes upside down and all speakers suffered because meetings were cut. If you're out there speaking and you'd been doing this for a while, you realize that meetings went from five days to three days to two days. And instead of bringing in six speakers, they were bringing in perhaps two professional speakers and, and two industry guys. And so all of us felt the effect of that. But for me, it was deeper because my topic area was recruiting and retaining young employees. And because the economy had changed, most companies had more applications than they knew what to do with. And young people weren't leaving their jobs. Yeah, that would be a perfect storm. It's like, not only are there fewer meetings, fewer speeches, but you know, your topic, Eric, we don't actually care anymore. Right, exactly. Ouch. And more than that, you know, I had written another book in 05 that was called Getting Them to Give a Damn. It gave more fuel, you know, we're talking 08. Hey, that was three years ago. What have you done for me now? I hadn't written anything new, but the biggest element to my decision was when, when I started speaking about Generation Y, there wasn't anyone else I could even refer. There were people that did multi-generation programs, but nobody really focusing on Generation Y. And I started looking at the hundreds of speakers who had added Generation Y as one of their topic areas. And I turned around and said, you know, th 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 there's so many people pitching Generation Y that my stuff is getting, you know, lost. And so I had to make the change to stay relevant. I, so you were saying, I got to get out of Dodge. Yeah. So tell us, Eric, so you now have that realization where you said, okay, my topic is like best if used by 2008. So you've had like an expiration date on your key topic, your key brand. Have you built your whole business? And this is the major uh-oh moment. 
how do you decide what to migrate to? Did you say, I'm going to try and find something completely new? Or how did you evolve your expertise into something new? Well, once again, I think pain creates a lot of questions. And it's not just answering the questions, it's questioning your answers. And if anybody listening gets anything out of this interview at all, hopefully they'll get the fact that my direction has always been one of listening very intently to what the market is saying. So, you know, my passion is teens and young adults, school to work transition, helping young people figure it out and helping companies and organizations figure out how to assimilate young people in the workplace. So I listened to what the market was telling me and what I heard over and over again, when you ask managers, leaders, I don't care if you're talking to, you know, executives for a high tech company that are recruiting off the campuses of Stanford and MIT or managers from Burger King, they'll tell you the same thing. Young people have no work ethic. So I went and searched for this, you know, what's the definitive source on on work ethic and developing work ethic? Brian, there hasn't been a book written on work ethic since 1904. I should say a business book. There is an academic book out there. It costs like 150 bucks, but there really isn't a business book, a book for leaders talking about how to develop work ethic. And that right there, once again, was the the genesis of creating the new brand. So I'm in the midst and what people will find out by the time this audio plays is that my new brand is Reviving Work Ethic or RevivingWorkEthic.com. I have the only book on work ethic and I'm the only speaker, at least right now, on work ethic. So work ethic is a big concern. Everybody talks about it and there's really nobody doing anything about it. It's my passion, my area. It's what I've done my research, my homework on. And so that's what I've relaunched. You know, it's not that Generation Y has just all of a sudden disappeared, but it's gravitating. So my clients are now going, wow, there's a new topic area. It's more relevant. He's got solid information on this. He's written a book on it. So there's a PR campaign behind it. And it wasn't something that just came to me in the middle of the night. It was really looking and listening heavily to the marketplace. Now that you've identified, okay, I've got my next big thing. And similar to you did with Generation Y, you said, okay, I can be the first. I can, you know, plant the flag on the moon here in work ethic. How do you evolve? In other words, do you do two brands at one time? Do you kind of uh, a little overlapping here? Or do you just say, hey, I burn my ships and I just sail into the off the face of the earth? Well, that might be the case, Brian, if I was, you know, going completely a totally different direction than Generation Y. People know me in the marketplace as being able to speak to to business leaders, executives, managers, franchise owners, etc., on the challenges they face with the young generation or the emerging workforce. Well, that hasn't really changed. The branding has. The focus of the message has changed. But if I would have gone completely different and said, hey, okay, I'm going to do some after-dinner comedy, you know, or I want to go now talk about, you know, territorial sales management. It'd be a completely different process. But what I've been able to do is leverage my experience to say, you know, I have a pretty significant client list. I have a lot of people out there that are drinking the Kool-Aid and like the fact that I bring a different type of perspective about what youth is thinking about. And now I'm just bringing different strategies, different ideas, different techniques gained from being able to work with all these companies and organizations and still stay in touch with the youth of America. And so I can bring them perspective in terms of here's the biggest issue that you're facing and here's how we can tackle it. Eric, with this new topic here, which is the work ethic, reviving the work ethic here, who wants that most? In other words, are you in one end or both ends? In other words, are you working with employers? Here's how you teach them? Do you go to the youth and said, let me teach you how to have a work ethic? 
or are you doing both? I'm actually doing both. I'd, I'd like to be thought of as the secret Dakota ring. <laughs> so I've, I've created an entire program for youth. It uses the same seven values that are essential in developing a core work ethic. That program or that initiative is called Bring Your A-Game to Work. There is a sophisticated training program that is now being used in in schools, in workforce centers, companies and organizations as their first step in training. I, I've been developing and working on that for the past seven years, and I've got some business partners who are doing a magnificent job. That's, you know, uh, that's a really cool tool. The reviving work ethic is the message that is delivered to leaders. Here's what you can do culturally. Here are some strategic initiatives, some things that you can do to develop the work ethic in the young people. It's not that you don't have a work ethic challenge with, you know, with that 52-year-old engineer that's working for you, but hey, that cake is baked. Let's go back to the emerging workforce so we can have the most impact and see what we can do there to enhance these seven values that will get them to work harder, to stay longer, to be more committed, and literally it will be great for them as well. It's not a it's it's not something that you just do to manipulate people. It's it's the way to get the best out of them by seeing the best in them. Now, how do you see your business model uh, evolving now? Is it this primarily speaking publishing? Uh, you talked about bring your A game to work. That sounds like a program or a game or an exercise. I mean, uh, how is your business model evolving to, I guess, roll out this new brand and service area? Well, the Bring Your A-Game to Work program is not me giving speeches. I've written the book, Bring Your A-Game to Work, The Seven Fundamental Values That Will Make Every Employer Want to Hire You and Fight to Keep You. That is a book aimed at youth. And by the way, we're also creating an adult version that plays very well to, to 20-somethings that are coming into the workplace and trying to figure it out. How in the world can I build my career? But that is a training program. We have online training, uh, uh, an entire curriculum with classroom guides, textbooks, PowerPoint slides, etc. That is not me speaking. The reviving work ethic is basically speaking, training, and books and resources to help leaders end entitlement and restore pride in the emerging workforce. So my business model is, you know, speaking, as as a as a revenue source and and books and and resources i'm really not a consultant although i have done some some consulting i don't position myself as a consultant but i speak i train and i have a what i think is a pretty good book so you so you speak you train you have the book you've got the trained curriculum it sounds like you have online an online program yeah pretty sophisticated online program for the bring your a game to work initiative there is not an online training component to the reviving work ethic yet that could possibly be developed but right now all my time and my energy and my resources are behind the book and the live presentations i believe if you focus on those areas you can significantly upgrade the quality of each. And as long as you're putting good quality stuff out there in a timely, relevant topic, I mean, the, the world is your oyster. If you like oysters. Yeah, if you like oysters. What's your speaker IQ? Yes, it's time to quickly quiz you a non-trivial trivia from the speaking meeting industry. You will hear a series of multiple choice fill in the blank and true or false questions. For every correct answer you make, you are likely superior to most of your NSA colleagues. And remember, in this game, what you don't know probably will hurt you. Number one, true or false. In a recent global survey of internal communication professionals, the top areas scheduled for resource increases in 2012 are corporate intranet, video, and social media. And the answer is 
true. That's right. The opportunity for speakers is high-value content delivered in short videos posted on corporate intranets. Companies are hungry for content. Why not yours? Number two, multiple choice. According to 80% of the respondents to an American Express meetings and event Max Vantage survey, in 2012, the number of meetings in North America is estimated to A, increase, B, increase or match last year levels, C, match last year levels, or decrease, or D, decrease. And the answer is B, increase or match. Hmm. Not really a lot of confidence either way. Perhaps those respondents need a motivational speaker. And number three, fill in the blank. According to the same survey, 62% of respondents definitely expected a noticeable decrease in meeting blank in 2012. And do you think the answer is budgets? Nope. Worse, lead time. So get ready to act fast with all that customization you do to help justify your fee. And now it's our segment on platform power. We are picking up where we left off with Karen Lawson, CSP PhD, on how to build interaction into our presentations. In our first interview with Karen back in November, she shared a powerful ABCD colored cards technique where audience members voted by flashing the appropriate card. But Karen has got a lot more to share. All right, what else? What else is a good interactive technique that we can do? Uh, another one is you can always put people into small groups or work with their partner. One of the things that I use is called active knowledge sharing. And very often in our business, particularly in management programs, we tend to throw out a lot of statistics. Well, for example, I will have a slide that says, speaker speaks at blank, how many words per minute, people can listen at blank, how many words per minute. And I ask people to work with their partner to guess what they think those numbers are. And again, the really cool thing about that is that they're engaged with each other, they're all speculating, and they're, they're really engaged because they want to know, gee, did I get it right? Mm-hmm. So they're all excited about that. So you have their attention. Now, think about that as opposed to normally when presenters just put up the slide with mm-hmm. the numbers up there. Okay, oh well, move on to the next one. So it's really interesting. Now, for the information for our, our listeners, A speaker speaks at a rate of 125 to 150 words per minute, and we can listen at a rate of 400 to 500 words per minute. Now, the very interesting thing about that is people are going, you're kidding, because I also asked a few people, "What, what are your numbers that you put in the blank? And interestingly enough, they generally have a higher number in the speaking as opposed to the listening, and they are amazed that we can listen at you know four times that number. And then we talk about what does that mean for us as speakers? That means that we have to engage people. We have to get people involved. They learn by doing, not by sitting there being little sponges. Now, do you ever adjust the numbers? Like let's say you're in the South and you say the average speaker here speaks at about 17 words per minute? Well, it's interesting you should ask that because I do have people say, well, what part of the country is that? I said, it's an average, folks. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, uh, New York East Coast, uh, it's <laughs> right. about 316, Alabama, four. If you're from Alabama, sorry, that was a joke. <laughs> so what I like, uh, one of the things I, I think is really interesting is that you're having them together with their partner tussle it out. Now, I've seen a lot of speakers go, you know, fill in the blank, what do you think? And then they write it down or they mentally do it. But you're having them meet with a partner, and I'm guessing that that makes it more engaging. 
Yes. Again, this is based on this whole cooperative learning research that was done, that people do learn more, retain more when they can talk about it with each other. Because they're probably not instantly going to come up with the same number, so they got to negotiate. Well, yes, Barbara, do. why do you think that, Barbara? That's crazy. Absolutely. It's actually this. Brian, you blah, blah, blah. Right. All right. Uh, so that's two. You got a third one? I have a third one. You go back to your ABCD cards. This time you're going to pull out the A and the D. The A is for agree. The D is for disagree. So you're like multiple use of your same affordable Absolutely. props. Okay. So again, you're putting up true-false questions such as... Um, Younger folks under 35 have a short attention span. Agree, disagree, then. Agree, disagree. Women learn differently from men. Older folks have a harder time learning new material. So it's really interesting, Mm -hmm. particularly in an audience that is multi-generational. It's very interesting to see the results. And then, of course, we'll stop and talk about what is your reason, whether you agree or disagree with it. So we have a very interesting conversation going on as a result of it. And it gives people an opportunity to get out some of their their stereotypes uh, in that particular content and kind of dispel those those myths that they might have. But it, it, the one thing I want to point out with all these techniques, Brian, is that it is applicable to any subject. And mm-hmm. the great thing about these interactive techniques is that you can take a very, very, very dry subject and make it interesting by just putting in some of these techniques. Mm-hmm. Here's a question here. I'm listening to this. I'm going, Karen, I love this card technique. Can we immediately apply and steal this? In other words, this, it's, I know it's a concept, but if people say, that's a great idea, I'm going to use that. Are you comfortable with people immediately using these ideas? Absolutely. Okay. Just checking. You know, I didn't know if there was like colored cards, trademark, Karen Lawson. You know, just wanted to make no, sure. No, because I have it in a lot of my books, so. Okay, in your book there, so. All right. So that, that's a good one. I'm hungry for more. Uh, another one is called Point Counterpoint. So I would put a slide. Now you do realize that we actually have a point counterpoint segment here in VOE. So yes, we're I a big did. we're a big fan of that. So, so it tell is us positive. how you apply it. Yes. So the slide or a flip chart page, I would put a statement such as "Leaders are born, not made." Mm-hmm. And I would divide the audience into small groups. Mm-hmm. Uh, and again, you can do this in a large group. They mm-hmm. can they can. Uh, adjust themselves accordingly. So any size group will work in. And I will ask one side of the room to agree with that statement. Yes, they absolutely believe that leaders are born, not made. The other side of the room, I tell them, what I want you to do is work together and prepare arguments that refute that statement. So you give them a few minutes, and again, the, the number of minutes, the time, is absolutely up to you as a speaker and facilitator. You can make it as long or as short as you want to. Uh, after they have been given a, an adequate n- amount of time to prepare their arguments, then you start with the pro side, mm-hmm. and you ask someone to state what their supporting statement is. Then I would ask them to call on someone on the other side. So they get to call someone on the other they side. Get to, and the other person, it's not a debate. It's just mm-hmm. the other person is bringing up a point mm-hmm. that they disagree with that particular statement. Then they, that person then, calls on someone on the other side. So it's back and forth. And you as a speaker, all basically you're doing is you are orchestrating the process and facilitating the learning experience. Mm-hmm. Once again, it can go for as long as you want it to, or it can be very, very short. So in this uh, technique, uh, Again, it's not a debate, but do they sometimes start to take it there? Is it sometimes we be, Bob, you pompous ass? I mean, do they go all Saturday Night Live on you or not necessarily? No, not, not really. They're generally pretty, pretty controlled. Okay. But if you want them to go. Oh, but if I wanted to, then you just kind of, yeah. Go to them a little bit and you away betcha. they go. Yes. All right. That's excellent. 
So talk to me about audience movement and why that's important and things that we can do to get the audience moving. Oh, people do not sit well, especially adults. Mm -hmm. So we need to get them up. It's just an energy thing for one thing. But secondly, there is a correlation in terms of the movement and the and the energy and the learning. It all fits together. So anytime we can get them up, even if it's back to our agree and disagree, sometimes with a large audience, even if you just get them up, who, who agrees, stand up. Mm-hmm. So even the get up, sit down kind of thing could be helpful. Mm-hmm. But it's it's great to have people moving and again smaller groups, but being able to interact with people that they normally wouldn't interact with. So it's it has a lot of other impacts in terms of not just learning, but getting to know other people, relating to other people. It it just has a lot of benefits. All right. So what are some different techniques we can do to get people moving? Obviously, stand up, sit down as one, raise your hand, which is the most boring one that most audiences seem to hate. Raise your hand if you want to be successful as opposed to being a pathetic fool. Which I hate. Uh, I tell you, I, I hate personally that. hate that. Yes. I think everybody except the speakers who do them hate them. But. Yes. So obviously, you're not advocating that. So what uh, what are some of the things that we can do to get the audience moving? Well, again, I, this applies to a, a smaller group, a workshop, or sure. seminar, or training but, class. Yeah. But I, a training class, I put people into groups uh, according to different things. I, I might have props that, uh, and I generally have a theme. So if I'm doing a zoo theme, every uh, person might have a different little animal, okay. and I might create groups of five. Uh, mm-hmm. Who has? Who's a tiger? Who's a bear? Who's a zebra? Whatever. Who's a chinchilla? Uh, yeah, it's it's just kind of a fun way to get them uh, moving. Now, another way I use a technique called a grouping card. A grouping card. Grouping card. So every person get a three by five card, mm-hmm. and on that card would be a number, a colored dot, and a sticker. Again, let's go back to my zoo theme. Mm-hmm. So if I want to move the group quickly. And efficiently. What I do is, so for example, for the, the sake of illustration, let's say I have a, a group of 12. Uh-huh. And sometimes I might want to have two groups of six. So there would be either numbers one or two uh-huh. on the card. If I want uh, three groups of four, I would have three stickers. So someone would get a zebra, a hippopotamus, uh-huh. or a bear. Yep. And if I wanted four groups of three... Then I would have four color dots, red, blue, green, mm-hmm. yellow. So for this activity, I would say we're going to group by numbers. So the one's over here, two's over here. Mm-hmm. Um, next activity, we're going to group by color dots. I want the reds here, the blues, the greens, the yellows. So people can move very, very efficiently. I don't know if you've been in situations before where people want to group people and they, they go, all right, let's count off. One, two, three. One, two, three. Everybody hates that. Mm -hmm. Uh, Besides, it's boring. It's an instant way, but I like it where you have multiple criteria on the card. Right. Because you can do different slices. Because I I hate it when you're grouping, you're like, oh, I'm in the blue group. I'm now stuck with the blue group. Yes. Forever. Oh, no, Rocky's (laughs) in the blue group. I'm tired of looking at Rocky. (laughs) Absolutely. Rocky's tired of looking at me. Now, the other thing to kind of have fun with, and I actually have had this happen. Uh, you really have to think about uh, stickers. If you're using, for example, a zoo theme, mm-hmm. I have had people be very offended by the particular animal they got. So I have a disclaimer now and tell them, if you have an elephant or a hippopotamus, I'm not making a social commentary, okay? That's right. Well, how dare you call me a Labrador retriever? That's right. <laughs> yeah, I, I've noticed that. I remember there's certain, like, those behavior style systems where it's like, okay, you're a lion, you're an owl, and then one's like, you're an otter. It's like, 
as an otter a noble animal it's like <laughs> hi i'm carefree i must be around others or i die so all right okay so so that's interesting way so having multiple criteria to instantly break people into different types of groups and very efficient okay that's great um what other audience movement techniques do you have well sometimes it's just having someone in the audience come up on the stage with you okay now the psychological benefit of that is that the rest of the folks in the audience identify with that individual. Mm -hmm. So when he or she joins you on the stage, in essence, they're taking the audience with them. Mm -hmm. Now, the caveat with that is, it's, it's, I think it's very important to make sure that you are calling on someone that, and talking that you've talked to that person beforehand mm -hmm. so that he or she is not put on the spot. Mm -hmm. So it's important that we prime people beforehand. Sure. All right, so we've been talking about groups of different sizes here. Let's go for the, the, the smaller group. A, a lot of us are what I call a blended speaker. So we do, yes, we do some keynotes, but we also do a lot of, okay, we have groups of 50. We have a you know, leadership offsite with 25 people, or we have a training class. So now we've got a, we have a longer format day, and we have lots of information. We have a smaller group. What's, what's a good technique to use in that type of environment? The technique is called card sort. Card sort. So, for example, if I were doing a program on teams mm -hmm. and or facilitation training, and I want to talk to people about the stages of team development, forming, norming, storming, performing, mm -hmm. what I would I do is identify first. I I create header cards: forming, storming, norming, performing. Okay. Then I would have probably four or five qualifiers, characteristics, descriptors, whatever you want to call them, under each card. So it's an even number. So okay. every category would have, let's say, five descriptors in it. Okay. What I do is shuffle those cards. I would put people into groups, again, with our techniques that we talked about earlier, give each team a stack of cards, and their job is to sort the descriptors into the appropriate headers. Okay, so they're having to process the characteristics or the attributes and put them into the right category. Yes. Now, the interesting thing about this, this is not a review activity. This is really to introduce the material because I want people to think. And once again, when they have to think, they're much more likely to retain the information. And the other interesting thing about this particular card sort, when we're talking about the forming, norming, storming, performing, and of course, very rarely. I don't think I've ever had anyone who sourced them correctly. And that's okay. It doesn't make any difference. Let me, let me back up here. So you said you've never had anybody source them correctly. So what I'm interpreting from that is you don't make it easy. You haven't dumbed this down. It's not like, okay, you're in kindergarten. It's like pin the tail on the donkey. And this is, this is harder and more subjective. And so they're going to get it wrong. And that's okay because they're thinking and they're talking about it. So, for example, someone picks up the card and, and said, well, uh, this says that the group is in a state of confusion. Now, I think that that goes into forming. The other people go, no, 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 no. That goes into storming. So they have this wonderful little discussion. So, so tussling is good. It is very good. And then in this particular situation, at the end of it, I give them all a sheet of paper that shows the correct sorting. And we talk about what went on in your group at that time. And what they often talk about is, oh, in a 10-minute time period, we had our own little mini forming and storming. I like that. Let's go back to more assessment. I know you've got more techniques having to do with getting people to assess things here. What's another technique? Another technique I call is individual rating. Individual rating. Rating, yes. We would go back to the cards, only this time they're going to write down the number. 
Uh, it could be a five by seven, it could be eight and a half by 11, doesn't make any difference. So for example, if I'm doing a customer service training program, I might start by asking people to choose a number from one through 10, one being low, 10 being high, how they would rate their organization in terms of customer service. So ask them to put that number down and hold it up for everyone to see. Experience is it's, it's all over the board. Okay. The second question would be, turn your paper over. Now I would like you to rate yourself in terms of how you deliver customer service, rating yourself from one to 10. And it's just very interesting because quite often you find they have rated the organization quite low, but they think they're doing a terrific job. It's just, it's like the company's horrible. I am fantastic. Absolutely. Now, uh, since I imagine they're, they're doing this and they're all looking around to see what everybody else has done. Now, since this is kind of low tech, can they tell with the second round of answers like, ah, yes, we've all rated ourselves much better than the organization. Can they see the hypocrisy of that? <laughs> and we talk about that. Well, yeah. if you are the ones who are delivering the quality service, then what's the reason we have the organization is rated pretty low? Mm. And then they get into the discussion, well, it's because, you know, my friend in the other department, you know, that, that other department's pretty bad. Our department, on the other hand, is really good. Mm-hmm. Reminds me of the old Garrison Keillor quote that he you know, signs off in Lake Wobegon where, you know, all the women are strong, the men are good looking, and all the children are above average. It's <laughs> a good one. And now it's time for an awesome excerpt. This month, we are going to be hearing three clips from NSAer Rory Vaden. Rory is a self-disciplined strategist. He is co-founder of the multi-million dollar training company Southwestern Consulting, a two-time Toastmasters world champion of public speaking finalist and author of the book and program, Take the Stairs. In this first clip, you are going to experience how Rory reinforces a key point in his speech with a picture. Yes, you are going to actually hear the purpose of the picture. The picture is of a fitness club entrance with about 15 stairs. On either side of the stairs are escalators. That will become a rather important fact. In our life, in our business, we're kind of programmed to take the shortcut. I mean, if we have a choice between taking the escalator and taking the stairs, naturally, which one are most of us going to choose? The escalator. Of course, we'll create some logical story to support our emotional decision to take the stairs. We'll say that, oh, I'm... You know, I'm in a suit, or I'm running late, or I'm tired, or... This picture, I think, sums up very well what I'm talking about. (laughs) And you notice this is a set of stairs with an escalator, and which one are the people on? The escalator, naturally. Where are these people going? To the fitness center, yeah. And because of copyright law, I'm not allowed to mention the name of this 24-hour fitness center. But it's amazing that we would go to the gym and do this. This is a real picture. This is real life that we naturally take the shortcut. We have formed the habit of doing things the easy way. But, man, that's not what it really takes to be successful. This next clip from Rory's speech showcases his exceptional use of crafted self-deprecation. Let's face it, Rory is young compared to most of us. He is good-looking, a good dresser, well-educated, and has been successful at almost everything he's touched, and sports an amazingly thick head of hair. Most of these traits are ones his audience members do not share. That would normally result in a disconnect or even a likability problem, but not for Rory. Listen in this clip to how he masterfully reveals various examples of personal credibility 
through self-deprecating humor. See, I was raised by a single mother in this puny town just north of Denver called Frederick, Colorado. And if you've never heard of Frederick, it's one of those towns where farming is a big deal. Football is a big deal. Dental hygiene, not a big deal. And my mom's sold Mary Kay, which means that I grew up around women, thank you, around women constantly who were teaching me about the, the principles of success. It also means that I know more about makeup than I do about cars. <laughs> I mean, ladies, every morning, wash, toner, moisturizer, foundation, wrinkle-free eye cream, base eyeshadow, dark eyeshadow, blush, eyeliner, mascara, lip liner, and lipstick. I love it. All the ladies are like, yeah, yeah, we like him. All the guys are like, you know, this guy was a high school cheerleader. <laughs> and when I grew up, I went to college to study success. I got a degree in management, a degree in leadership, went on to get my MBA. And it was about that time that I started speaking about success and I found myself in this organization called Toastmasters International and I made it all the way to the world championship of public speaking and was the runner-up out of 25,000 people. As Jerry Seinfeld says, I was the number one loser. <laughs> but I do have all of these fancy credentials now after my name. You can see them up there on the screen. It says Rory Vaden, MBA, Masters of Business Administration. WCPSRU, world champion of public speaking runner-up. N-O-R-C, no one really cares. <laughs> and after all of these accomplishments, folks, I grew up to become a door-to-door -door salesperson. That's right, the most hated of all professions. We're like the human version of email spam. I mean, door to door, I mean, I never wanted to go door to door. You know, in my defense, I never wanted to grow up to become a door to door salesman. I was a perfectly normal child. I wanted to sell Mary Kay. <laughs> in this last excerpt, you will hear how Rory eases his audience into an important point. What you can't see but should know is that Rory starts this off by walking over and sitting down at the edge of the stage with his legs dangling off it. His rate of speech slows, and we hear him skillfully turn his story into the audience's story. I remember one day my first summer. It was about 2.30 in the afternoon. I was selling in Montgomery, Alabama. It had been raining all morning. I hadn't been in a door for six hours. And I remember sitting down on this curb on the corner of Buckingham Lane and Coral Court realizing that for the first time in my life, I was failing. And there's something about being 1,500 miles away from home. Everything you've ever done leaves you. Everybody you've ever known, you're by yourself. It's just you and a chance to, to meet your character and figure out what you're made of. And it was the first time in my life that I realized that I wanted to quit. I was ready to go home. And folks, you know things are bad when you want to go back to Frederick. <laughs> but in your life, in your business, have you ever been sitting here? 
on the corner of Buckingham Lane and Coral Court or your version thereof, faced with that, that moment. Because in that moment, there is a decision that has to be made. There's a decision about whether or not we're going to make an excuse, we're going to create a story, we're going to create some way out for ourselves that we can quit, essentially, that we can give up on our goal, we can give up on our job, our, our business. Or in that moment, are we going to be the kind of person that makes a decision to get up and knock on another door? Visual reinforcement, self-deprecation, transforming a story to not be about just him, but the audience. Those are some awesome excerpts. I've recently been reviewing the great value I got from NSA's first ever elite retreat, which was held back in December at the Ritz-Carlton Hotel in Key Biscayne, Florida. The event was expertly facilitated by Alan Weiss and attended by NSA speakers whose businesses were at the half-million-dollar revenue level and above. I wanted to share two takeaways from this austere group of speakers I thought you might find helpful. The first takeaway was the reflection that came from a seemingly simple question. Alan asked all of us in the group at the very beginning of the meeting, what are the desired results you hope to achieve from our time together? Attendees gave a dozen interesting responses that I wrote down. One, reduce labor intensity. Two, restructure my business model. Three, monetize differently. Four, take value-based fees to the next level. Five, increase my self-belief. Six, Grow my intellectual property offerings. Seven, become a trusted advisor to my clients. Eight, license my IP. Nine, end well and possibly sell my company. Ten, leverage technology to a greater extent. Eleven, productize my offerings to produce more passive income. And twelve, create more high-end retail offerings. These are all results that are important to pursue when your business is at the half million or higher level. But it isn't necessary to be at that level to realize how important they are. Which of these responses mirrors similar challenges you're facing in your speaking business? Your next opportunity to find the answers will be our Business Development Lab at NSA Headquarters in Tempe, Arizona from April 13th through 15th. The theme? is Cha-Ching. In this lab, you will be working on developing a sales strategy and acquiring the sales skills needed to increase your income and build a sustainable speaking business. Now, the second takeaway for me from the Elite Retreat was also a set of answers to a question. Alan asked, what are the characteristics of a thought leader? Attendees responded, published and cited offers unique ideas, is well-known in the field, knows the other key players in a given area of expertise, is unconventional and provocative, sought after for comment, has a personal brand and a strong following, continuously generates new intellectual property, distills complex into simple ideas, and can create an original nomenclature or soundbite from an idea. 
Those responses are a checklist to thought leader success. Are you offering unique ideas? Check. Do you have a strong following? Check. Can you create an original nomenclature or soundbite from an idea? No? Well, then that becomes a focus. As I shared that list, what instantly popped into your mind as a not yet for you and your business? Do you need to up your game to truly be seen as a thought leader? Then get going. In my presidential acceptance speech at convention, I invited you all to go on a mission with me to use our words to inspire people to action. As thought leaders, we deliver optimism, encouragement, and tools to help people make positive changes. Focus on your mission to improve your client's condition and light the fires in the hearts of your audience members with your words. So come to the Business Development Lab, April 15th through 17th in Tempe, Arizona. And once you increase your thought leader positioning and learn how to sell it, we'll hopefully see you at a future elite retreat. Each month, VOE closes with a special segment called VO Me. That's basically commentary by me about some aspect of platform skills, marketing, or just something that strikes my fancy. Today, the topic is how best to display crappy video. Or more specifically, your crappy video. The kind of candid clips that you feature in your presentations. Now, don't get me wrong. Crappy video in presentations can be good use of video. I am merely referring to the visual quality of it. According to Nielsen, more than 50% of cell phones in the U.S. are now smartphones. So what this means is that the vast majority of video capture these days is happening on the iPhone, Droid, or BlackBerry. The video looks and sounds great on the tiny 3-inch smartphone screens, but when you project it in your presentation on a 12 by 16 foot screen in front of your audience, it looks, wait for it, crappy. Fortunately, there is a solution, and it's not to only use a proper high-definition camera. No, the trick is to shrink down the size of your video image on the PowerPoint slide or Keynote slide in your presentation. Do not have it run full screen. All that will do is emphasize its murky, pixelated crappiness. When you scale the video down to half or a third of the size of your slide, it magically looks sharper and better. But because it's being projected, it still is large enough to be seen. That's the basic answer. An intermediate answer is to create a reason for the video to be scaled smaller on the slide. The easiest technique is to have the slide that the video is on be black. You are thus creating empty black space around your video image. That makes it seem more like a movie at a theater. Our eyes just accept what is there, the video, and ignore the black background. Now, if you do the same thing, though, with a light background or a colored or textured background, all it does is emphasize that your video isn't filling up the available visual space. And unconsciously, at least, the audience senses that you're an amateur. Now, the advanced way to justify the scaled-down size of the video image is to put it into a context. For example, you put a picture of a TV or a computer or a computer monitor on your screen, and then you shrink down the video image to fit that screen space. The audience just accepts that they are watching the video on a screen that they are used to seeing. Because it's small, it's crisp and better quality. And that is how you make crappy video not crappy at all.
Well, that's it for this month. Let's keep the conversation going on VOE topics by commenting on our Facebook posts. Just search for the NSA VOE page or join the National Speakers Association group. We'll talk again in April. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.